Um, so like Alex said, my name's Wes, and uh, I'm our pastor here, so really glad you joined us. Those of you online checking stuff out today for the first time, really glad that you're here too. Um, we are uh, going to start a new series of messages today. Uh, this is kind of different for us, so um, we're going to spend 14 weeks talking about the same thing. So how exciting is that? Yeah. Pretty pumped, yeah, pretty pumped up. So um, we're going to talk, as you can see here, the Crossbridge Summer of Discipleship is what we're calling it. So we're going to spend 14 weeks talking about this topic of discipleship. Now, I know not many people woke up this morning thinking, man, I can't wait to talk about being formed as a disciple of Jesus. Like, I, you just pop, your head popped off the pillow and you're like, discipleship, I just got to talk about it. So today, I feel like my goal is I want to talk to you about why I think this is important and kind of make a few just observations worth noting about discipleship. And then uh, at the end of the sermon today, I'll tell you what you've got to look forward to uh, over the next like 12 weeks, 13 weeks of doing this together. Um, but I'm really hoping this will be something that shapes and changes our church. So uh, I'm excited about that. So I want to dive in today. I want to talk about why does discipleship matter so much to us? Why is it such a big deal? And I just want to start here. We are all discipled by something, okay? To be discipled is simply the idea that I'm formed and shaped by someone or by something. And discipleship is important because we are all discipled by something. And my encouragement to you is I want it to be the right something. I don't want it to be the wrong something. Because when it's the wrong something, it can be disastrous. But when it's the right something, it can be something beautiful, okay? Now, a number of different things in our lives disciple us, okay? We're discipled by our experiences, okay? Um, I have a friend named Sean, and uh, Sean has a really just crazy life story. And uh, Sean, um, he, he is now a Christian, but before he became a Christian, Sean was a white supremacist, okay? So that's pretty radical transformation there, okay? And Sean would tell you that I've actually asked him, like, Sean, so help me understand, like, what's the deal here, dude, you know? And Sean explained to me that when he grew up, he grew up here locally, he went to Godby High School, and when he went to high school, he got bullied just mercilessly by this group of black kids at his school. And that created an experience for him that created an open door for him to be discipled into feeling a certain way about an entire group of people. Which actually leads me to the second thing that disciples us, which is our tribe disciples us, okay? So when my friend Sean experienced this bullying at school, guess what he did? He soon found a group of like-minded individuals at his high school that they probably wouldn't have used this terminology, but they essentially took him under their wing and they discipled him into a particular way of thinking and feeling and doing and acting, okay? Now, we're, we're tribal people, okay? Like, we like to act like we are. We like to act here in America like we're super cool and we're independent and you don't tell me how to think and what you do, you know? It's kind of like that trope of, like, high school kids. It's like, yeah, I'm such a cutting-edge thinker, which is exactly why I'm doing the same thing that all the other 50 emo kids at my high school are doing, you know, or whatever, right? That was me as a kid, okay? Um, and so, like, we like to think that we're really independent, but the fact is we're really tribal, 
right? It's kind of funny how my political views just over time slowly kind of mesh with the political views of my preferred news network, right? You know, it's kind of funny how a lot of us, our kind of viewpoints on life seemingly over time, they either, they either meld perfectly with the family we grew up in or they are 100% the opposite of the family we grew up in because we don't want to be anything like the family that we grew up in, right? But we kind of find a tribe and that tribe disciples us, okay? Um, we're discipled by cultural ideas and mantras, okay? Your phone is the greatest discipleship device known to man because every time I hop on here and I log on to Facebook or I do Instagram or whatever, right, I'm being slowly, subtly, imperceptibly discipled in a particular way of thinking, right? Oh, cool people do this. Cool people believe that. Uncool people do this. Uncool people believe that, right? And it's not like, it's not like I, you know, scroll through Instagram and like someone's picture has like a sign that says, I want to disciple you in thinking a particular way about this issue, right? They never say that. But it kind of happens just subtly, imperceptibly, under the surface. We kind of see what's good in our culture, what's bad in our culture, and it kind of slowly gets absorbed as part of us, right? All of this is natural. It's not all necessarily bad. But here's why I'm here to tell you today. You are being discipled by something. You are being discipled by someone. My encouragement to you is make it the right something. Make it the right someone, okay? The question is not, will I be discipled by something? The question is, who or what will I be discipled by, okay? Because all of us are being formed, shaped, and trained in a particular way of thinking, believing, doing, acting, and behaving. That's because we're all discipled by something, okay? Here's the second reason why this matters. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's a task Jesus gave us to do. I mean, I don't want to get to, you know, bottom line basic here, but like if Jesus says we should do something, you know, if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, I should probably do it, right? Matthew 28, 19, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, okay? So Jesus says right here, his command is literally, hey, go make disciples, okay? So if I want to be a follower of Jesus, part of what that entails is I should make disciples, which kind of entails I should also live as a disciple, um, if you're checking out our church today, if you're online, if you're new, you're newish around Crossbridge, like I think this is a great time to pop in because we are literally going to talk about for this entire summer, here's what it means to live as a follower of Jesus, or here's a snippet of what it means to live as a follower of Jesus. Here's what it is to be a disciple of Jesus, okay? So I'm going to talk about a little bit of that today, and certainly over the rest of the summer, we're going to talk about that. Here's the third reason. Um, I think that discipleship matters because we care about disconnected people connecting to God, okay? Um, here's kind of the thing. Whenever I talk to people who are new to our church, like sometimes we have like a new newcomer event where we have like dinner or pizza or something like that. And like, you know, everyone comes and I'll talk about the church for probably about 15 minutes longer than they would like for me to talk about our church. But I'm just kind of a talker and I do that. And they can ask questions, that kind of thing. Something I always say every time I talk to people about our church is, guys, I want you to understand, I think it's great you've connected to our church. That's wonderful. The win for me is not that you connect to Crossbridge. The win for me is that you would connect to God. Because A, that's our mission, and B, I don't know about you, I'll just speak for myself, I know a lot of people who are connected to churches 
And I am doubtful about the strength of the connection to God, okay? Is anyone feeling, okay, yeah. And so the, the idea that I can go to church is wonderful, but that, I mean, this is old preacherism, right? But going to church doesn't make you a follower of Jesus any more than standing in your garage makes you an automobile, right? Like, like I, I might be in, a, in the right place for those things, right? But that doesn't necessarily entail that, okay? Um, I want you to think about it this way. The reality is we're never going to be able to follow Jesus' command to make disciples if I am not living as a disciple, as a follower, as an apprentice of Jesus myself, right? That's going to be really difficult. And furthermore, here's what I want you to think about. Um, if we care about helping disconnected people connect to God, and that's the job of me or whoever's standing on stage talking at you on Sunday, you know, that kind of thing, okay? Like, I've got 168 hours in my week. If only one of them is spent like in disciple kind of content, that means that like I, I'm gonna have we're gonna have like 50 hours of disciple making potential a year. And let's be real, it's probably more like 25 or 30 hours because like you know, no one comes to church every week despite my constant prayers and pleadings. Everyone would just come every day to church, you know. Um, but if everyone in this, right, if like all 30 people that come to our church each week, if all of us lived as disciples like during the other 167 hours of the week, that's like 5,000 hours of discipleship that are unleashed into our community every week. That's the equivalent of over 100 years of you going to church, right, in terms of like discipleship potential, discipleship, right? I think that 5,000 in a week sounds a lot better than one in a week, right? If we care about people connecting to God. And so I think that's a big reason. And here's the fourth reason I came up with. I think discipleship matters because we see the bad outcomes of the American discipleship crisis, okay? The church here in our country is not doing a really good job right now at living as disciples, okay? Um, some of you are probably familiar with this, but two or three weeks ago, there was a report that came out about the Southern Baptist Church. Southern, I'm not here to pick on Southern Baptists. They're just in the news, okay? That's the largest group of churches and Christians in America right now. And the report came up about the Southern Baptist Church. That basically, for years, uh, Southern Baptist Church leaders have employed pastors and key leaders in the denomination who have been sexually abusing women and children for years, and they knew about it, and they just covered it up. They did exactly the same thing that, you know, they got on the Catholic Church were doing 15 or 20 years ago when all that came out, right? Um, and so I read a report like that, and I see, like, it's not, like, it's not just, like, random pastors. Like, that's terrible. That's heinous. I think that's awful. I'm glad they're out. I hope they get kicked out of ministry. Like, I'm glad about that, you know? Don't make it hard for the rest of us. But like, it should be pointed out, it's not just that, like, it's presidents of the Southern Baptists to not, like, it, it's just everyone, right? And I think to myself, man, no wonder that the church is in such a struggle right now. These are the people in charge of leading the church, right? Like, no wonder we're struggling to make disciples. But I don't need to beat up some denomination in the news somewhere. And again, I'm not doing it to them, right? Every church has problems. Like, I, I can look around and I can see denominations that are left and right leaning that have no problem setting aside the teaching of Jesus so I can embrace kind of my ideology and way of thinking about stuff, right? And let me be real honest as your pastor. Let me tell you about the most discouraging things that happen to me as a pastor. It's when I'm having lunch or coffee or whatever with someone, we're talking about life, and that person kind of opens up and they share about part of their life where they're like struggling, they're not living as a follower of Jesus. 
And, and that makes me sad. Not, understand me here, not because they're out of alignment with Jesus. Not because they're living in sin. Okay, I'm very familiar with living in sin. I, I, I'm a professional at it. Okay, I promise you. What makes me discouraged is when they tell me about this struggle they're having and then the next words out of their mouth indicate, and I'm not really interested in changing. And I'm not really interested in trying to help like, and really exerting much effort at all in taking my life up to the standard of God's word. Because what that says to me is, I'm not really interested in living as a disciple of Jesus. I'm like, I'm a fan of Jesus. I'm interested in Jesus when he gets inserted into the list of priorities in my life, but not so much when he gets control over my life. I'm actually discipled to something else, right? Could be my comfort, could be my crowd I run with, could be whatever it is, right? I find that discouraging. And I think that's kind of emblematic of this discipleship crisis that, that the church in America is in. Here, here's what we need to understand about this, guys, is that when Christians don't live as disciples, Christianity dies, okay? I'm a big fan of, of, I'm a big fan of when people walk away from a fake version, from a not biblical, not true version of Christianity, right? Because that's just, that's just a lot. That's not Christianity, okay? We have a lot of things that wear the label of Christian in our country right now that are not of Christ, okay? But when we don't live as disciples, when we create, kind of like I said earlier, and everyone I think kind of has this image of, when we can create distance between what it means to be a part of, the, part of God's community, but not actually be part of like following God and like living as a member of God's family, when there's a disconnect between being a Christian and being a disciple, right? That's not a good thing. The reason the first century church took off like wildfire, the reason that a couple, you know, like a hundred people with no education and no money and no power and no real meeting place and no, you know, Harvard trained leaders or any, you know, like whatever, the reason that that ragtag group of a hundred or so people in the first century was able to outlast the Roman Empire, which had everything, right? was precisely because they, did, they weren't content to live as people that just wore the name of Jesus and name only. They lived as disciples. Amen. They offered a different, countercultural, better version of life that the world around them found attractive. I would love for our church, and when I say our church, not just like Crossbridge Christian Church, but our church here in this nation, in the, you know, in, in our, at least in our region, in our state, in our city, to lead the way in saying, guys, I'm not going to be content to just live as a Christian, whatever that means. I want to live as Jesus' disciple. Amen. And there's a big difference there. And that difference is everything. So today, I want to talk about several different things. And so they're all M words. So I worked really hard to make them all M words. They're going to be so proud of me. Today's going to feel a little more informational, so I apologize. We'll get back to the lovely, life-changing content that you love uh, every time I speak next week. Um, so thank you for laughing, Melissa. That's good. Anyway, um, so I want to talk to you. I want to start by talking about what the mindset of a disciple is. Okay, so like what, what defines a disciple? And here's all it is. A disciple is one who is an apprentice to Jesus. Let's all say that word together, apprentice. I'm an apprentice, apprentice. Okay, 
Um, I used to live in the Chicago area. The church I used to be a pastor of had a lot of people that worked in the trades. So people who were plumbers, electricians, pipe fitters, you know, they, like, they had like blue collar, like, t- you know, just tough jobs, you know, that kind of thing. And when you would go to trade school to become an electrician or a plumber or whatever, you would go to trade school and you would learn like the craft of electricity, you know, right? You'd learn how circuits work and how electrical grids are set up and like what the, what the official, you know, like the, the builder's code for electrical stuff is and all that, right? But when you finished trade school, you weren't an electrician. You then went to become the apprentice of a master electrician. And what that meant was every day when Bill gets in his, you know, big old work van, you're going to get in the passenger seat right next to him, and you're just going to go with Bill, the master electrician, to every appointment, to every job, to everything, and you're going to do that day after day, week after week, month after month, maybe for a year or longer until Bill basically says, hey, I think this guy's got what it takes to wear the label of electrician now, right? He has been thoroughly apprenticed to me. He's been thoroughly apprenticed as a, as a practitioner of this trade, as a practitioner of this craft. I mean, it's the same thing that doctors do, right? You finish med school, right? But you're not like a doctor doctor yet, right? Then you got to do your residency and you got to go through and do all that stuff, right? That's the image I have of an apprentice. A disciple of Jesus is simply someone who is an apprentice to Jesus, right? Jesus, wherever you're going, whatever you're doing, I'm right there going and doing it with you. That's the image, okay? Um, Jesus, we don't think of him this way a lot, but in the first century world, Jesus was a rabbi. If you're a rabbi, what made you a rabbi was you were a teacher who had disciples, people who followed along, people you were teaching, and people who were learning from you. There was an ancient uh, Jewish blessing uh, for disciples of rabbis, and it said, may you be covered in the dust of the feet of your rabbi, okay? Like, which is kind of an image for how closely you as a disciple were meant to follow along whoever your rabbi was, whoever your teacher was, okay? When we read that verse earlier where Jesus says, go and make disciples, that word make disciples is the Greek word methetes. And that means to be a pupil, learner, or student, right? So again, the idea of I am sitting under the teaching, I am learning from, I am deriving my life from Jesus, okay? We like to think of following Jesus as another thing I fit into my life, and Jesus says, no, 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 no. You don't, you clearly don't understand what disciple means, okay? Disciple doesn't mean I'm another thing in your life. Disciple means I'm the hub of which all the spokes of the wheel of your life emanate, right? I'm not interested in being fit in as one of your priorities. I'm interested in being the thing from which your priorities stem. Am I making sense here? Am I being understood here, okay? Colossians, Paul, he's trying to help the church, help people just like you and I understand this. Paul says, this is to me a beautiful picture of what it means to be a disciple. He says, since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, okay? So my heart is with, like, the heavenly stuff. It's not in the, the world stuff, okay? It's where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. He continues on. He says, set your mind, and just making sure we get it, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. You died, okay, so your old way of living, we're, it's dead and gone. It, it, it's she gone, right? That's what Paul's saying. Your life is now hidden with Christ 
in God. Okay, so like if we see Jesus, we should see the crux on which your life operates is basically what Paul's saying. And then he wraps up this little statement by saying, uh, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory, right? So he basically makes several points in that four verse, you know, little passage there. Hey, Jesus, the image of Jesus is exactly the image of your life, basically, is what Paul is saying. And that, my friends, is the mindset of a disciple. So now, I want to talk about what the manifestations of it. That's a real good word, right? That's a good preacher word right there. The manifestation of a disciple. So, hey, if I'm a disciple, how's that going to manifest? What's that going to look like in my life, okay? And it's one word. It is love. But love as Jesus loved, okay? Let me show you. Jesus, talking to his disciples, he says this, John 13, 34. New command I give you, love one another. That is not the new command. This is the new command. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then he says, the whole world, this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Okay, so Jesus leaves no room for debate, okay? He doesn't just want his disciples to love people. He wants to love his disciples to love people and love God in the pattern that Jesus has shown them by what he has done and by how he has loved, okay? Now, I apologize because I'm going to get a little red in the face here. This is kind of pet peeve of mine around spirituality and Christianity right now. So if I'm preaching at you, it's because I am, because this annoys me, okay? We make love really sentimental and squishy and, oh, right? And, like, when we talk about love, it's, like, all a feeling and, oh, oh, I feel, I feel happy toward this person or toward this thing. And we should all just get along and it's all nice and lovey-dovey and, you know, all that kind of thing, right? And, and that's kind of how we think of love. That's great if you want to think about love that way. That is not the way that Jesus practiced love, which, again, is a problem if we want to live as his apprentices, Okay? Now, we should be really clear. Jesus' best lover ever was, okay? That's a real weird statement. Come on, my mouth. Let's try it again. Jesus was good at loving people. That's what I meant to say, okay? And Jesus, number one, the way we see Jesus love people is through sacrifice, okay? So John 15, a little bit later on after that verse I just read you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And then Jesus died for his friends, right? So he kind of showed him what he was talking about. Paul, helping Christians understand, in the book of Romans, Paul writes this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And the ungodly is not some category of really bad sinners. The ungodly is anyone who's ever committed to sin, ever, ever, at any point in their life. I don't care if you cheated on your wife or you stole a Tic Tac from the convenience store when you were five years old, okay? You're a sinner. You're ungodly. Next verse, Paul says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. And then he finishes by saying, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, now I'm just going to be real honest here, kids. I have a lot of problems being unselfish and loving toward the people I like. Okay, let alone toward the people I don't like let alone dying for the people I don't like. Paul says here in Romans 5, when we were saying to hell with God, God was giving his life to save us from the very hell that we were happy to send him to, okay? Like Jesus, Jesus 
gave his life for people that weren't even interested in him, without any promise they would become interested in him, without any like ability to kind of twist the screws and make us interested. He died and gave his life and literally on the cross went through hell on earth for us. I mean, that's what it sounds like to take all the sins of mankind upon your soul. Like that doesn't sound like a pleasant experience to me, right? Um, he literally went through hell on earth for us just so he could open up the possibility that we would have, you know, that he, he might be able to welcome us in the kingdom of God if we would turn from sin and, and walk in to know him, right? Like that's a, that's a really, that's a lot of love right there is basically what I'm trying to say. The love of Jesus is always, 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 if nothing else, sacrificial, okay? Now, John, one of Jesus' best friends, says in his biography of Jesus' life, when he opens up, he says, let me tell you about Jesus. We've seen his glory, Okay, his beauty, his essence, like who he is. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full, okay, so 100%, full of grace and truth. And so what John says here is, hey, make no mistake, anytime you interact with Jesus, he was going to be 100% fully gracious. He was going to be merciful. He was going to be kind. He was going to be generous and gentle and all these wonderful things. But you should also prepare to get your feelings hurt. Because he was also going to be honest. He was also going to tell you the truth about the world, about God, about you, and very specifically about how you may not be fitting as well into God's way of living as you like to believe that you are and that I am. Okay? Just a few examples. Later on in the Gospel of John, we have this little story. A woman is caught red-handed in the act of adultery. Religious leaders drag her in front of the crowd as Jesus is teaching, which would be kind of weird, you know? They're trying to make a point. They're trying to embarrass Jesus. Jesus makes a point instead and embarrasses all of the religious leaders. Really great story, and you're like, "Ah, take that, you know? And so the end of the story, it's Jesus and this woman, left this poor woman who's been dragged through this awful experience, and we're told Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Like, where are your accusers kind of thing? Has no one condemned you? And then she says, no one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now, I just want you to notice this here. Neither do I condemn you. That's pretty gracious, right? Because Jesus had every right to condemn her in this situation. But Jesus also says at the end, go now and leave your life of sin. Subtext, you are currently in a life of sin. Right? Let, let's, let's be real here. Right Now, Jesus didn't have to make a really big deal about this because I don't think he was arguing with someone who even disagreed with him. Right? I don't think Jesus said this and the woman, was, she's like, yep, I made some bad decisions. <laughs> Case in point, just committed the act of adultery, got dragged in front of it. Right? Like, she's not trying to argue with Jesus on this point. Now, when people would argue with Jesus on his truthfulness, Jesus amped up the truthfulness a little bit, okay? This is kind of every interaction Jesus had with the religious leaders. He wasn't trying to be mean. He was just trying to talk to hard-headed people, right? And when you're talking to hard-headed people, subtlety often doesn't work very well, right? I don't know if you've noticed that. But one of my favorite examples, Jesus, it wasn't just for like the people that were kind of anti-Jesus. It was like for people on Team Jesus, okay? Jesus starts telling his disciples, hey guys, just to let you know, I'm going to die. Don't worry, I'm going to raise from the dead. It's going to be cool. We're going to be good, guys. Don't worry about it. And Peter pulls Jesus aside and he's like, Jesus, you're really bringing the group down with all this I'm going to die stuff. Like that, like Jesus, we, like, we were getting ready to bring out the jock jams and we were going to like, 
you know, pump it up. You know, like we're really excited for the Team Jesus party. Like you need to kind of cool it on the death stuff, Jesus. People don't really, that's not, that's not putting a lot of butts in the seats, Jesus. And Jesus turned and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, right? Which is a really big uh, remark coming from a guy who's personally met Satan before, right? Like Jesus is the one person that can say, get behind me, Satan. And he's not like, that's not like a concept for Jesus. Like he's actually went through that experience, right? You are a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns, which if I can just kind of re-paraphrase, Peter, you're living as a disciple to your way of living, not to my way of living, right? And that's, that's what he's criticizing him for. Jesus was honest and truthful, even with his friends. Here's really what I'm trying to say, guys. Here's kind of my big point with this, and now I'll move on to the last two, is the way of Jesus, the love of Jesus is unconditionally kind, and it ha it's inviting to all, okay? So we're, we all go into the kingdom of God the same. There's not like the, the special person plan and the really bad sinner plan and the I've got a lot of money plan, you know, like, the, no, like everyone goes through the gate the same, right? What do you believe about Jesus, right? That, that's, that, that's the thing. And here's the thing. You can be a worse sinner than me and walk in ahead of me because you have a right belief about Jesus, whereas I'm still out here kind of trying to do it on my own, right? The, the way in is the same, and Jesus is going to be gentle and gracious, and he's going to be right there, ready, waiting for the second when I say, Jesus, I'm handing this to you, buddy, right? Like, he's going to be there, and he's not going to scold us about it. He's going to welcome us warmly. But, and, right, the love of Jesus also gives full responsibility for all of our choices, Love, as Jesus practices it, is I'm going to be honest with you about what's happening. I'm going to let you make your decision about the truth and what you believe about it and how you want to live according to it. And when you make your decision, I'm not necessarily just going to waltz right in and save you from the consequences of making a bad decision. Amen. I... I I love you enough to allow you to, to feel the weight of that. And that's true in this life. And that's also true as we move to the next life. Okay, One of the things I think our culture misses about Jesus, and this is kind of hard, we like to think of Jesus as like Mr. Lovey-Dovey. He's so nice. He's so kind. He's so gentle. You know, all the pictures we have of Jesus, he's like holding a lamb, and he's petting the lamb, and it's like very soothing, and he's got like the blue beauty pageant sash on, and he's got such beautiful herbal essences hair, and he's just like, you know, standing there doing that, okay? That's how we like to think of Jesus, but the problem is Jesus actually talked about hell more than anyone else in the entire Bible, that doesn't exactly square with like, you know, how we think of Jesus, right? I'll just give you one example. Matthew chapter 7. This is the Sermon on the Mount. This is like, this is like the premier teaching of Jesus. So it's not like he's trying to hide it in a corner somewhere, you know, where we don't see it. But he says, hey, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, the one who lives as my disciple. So what Jesus says here is, hey, it's not enough that you're just a fan of mine. It's not enough that, if I can say this, it's not enough that you're just a Christian. And then he continues on. He says, he makes it worse. He says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Jesus, look at my resume. I did a lot of stuff. I did a lot of good things, right? And Jesus says, well, I'm going to tell him plainly, I didn't know you. 
away from me, you evildoer, right? Like, like that is not very friendly. That doesn't feel very loving to me. But Jesus' point is, guys, I'm here to present to you the truth about God and how his kingdom works. And to allow you to make the decision what you want to do with that. Love is not, I coerce and manipulate and, and, and deceive and control your decisions, right? We call, we call that a toxic relationship, and rightfully so. Why should we expect that Jesus should like control and manipulate and coerce my free will decisions, right, to, to magically follow him, right? Jesus respects us too much to just do it for us. We have to choose. And he's gentle and gracious and loving and, and all, like he is ready and he is right there, ready to greet us when we're ready to greet him. But he's not going to make us. He's not going to force us. Parents, you know this, you have adult children, right? Like, I can't force them to do the right thing. They got to choose it. They got to do it on their own, right? The manifestation of a disciple is to love, but not love in the sappy, sentimental way that we often think about love, is to love as Jesus loved, okay? I promise the last two points are going to be a lot less long and a lot happier, okay? So, third point. Let's talk about God's means for making disciples. How does Jesus do this? How, how do we get formed as apprentices of Jesus? Dallas Willard, great writer, spiritual thinker, he writes that God has three means that he uses to help us grow as disciples of Jesus. Number one is daily interaction with the Holy Spirit. So when I'm going around in this world and I get that little twinge in my chest of like, man, that person is really weird and I feel like I should just love on them for, you know, like let them know someone loves them. But they're super weird. I'm just going to walk away, right? I've rejected the Holy Spirit in that moment, right? When I get that little thing inside, that I just feel like for whatever reason, I need to do something, say something, whatever it is, right? That's me interacting with the Holy Spirit. That's a way that Jesus forms us. Second way that we get formed as disciples is by faithfully enduring hardship, right? When we go through hardship, whether it's like the most severe, horrible thing you can imagine, or it's like, man, why do I live in the city of Tallahassee where like the lights can't match up? Like there's five lights on my way to work and I always hit every single, in fact, as I walk through the green light, I see the one right in front of me turn red. I'm looking at you, Monroe Street in downtown Tallahassee, okay? Like whether it's the big stuff or the small stuff, our faithful endurance of hardship forms us, it apprentices us in ways to Jesus that we can't be otherwise. Because I don't know about you guys, this is the truth for me. I learn a lot more when I'm kind of down on my face than when things are going great. You know, I, don't, I wish I wasn't that way. I wish it wasn't human nature to be that way. But crisis brings transformation in our lives the way that nothing else does. Isn't that true? If for no other reason, then maybe we discover we aren't as great a people as we like to think that we are all the time. The early church understood this. James chapter 1, we've read these verses before. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials, right? When you have hardships of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith uh, develops perseverance. Uh, I got too many notes here. Oh, there we go. Uh, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, right? That sounds like a discipleship word to me, if you ask me. Let perseverance finish its work so you are mature and complete, not lacking anything, right? He's saying, as, as we allow hardship to shape and change us, right, it, it perfects us. Um, 
We also grow as disciples of Jesus through engagement with the spiritual disciplines, Dallas Willard would say. Uh, when we engage with the spiritual disciplines, we grow as followers of Jesus. Now, there are time-honored spiritual disciplines, right? Prayer, opening the Bible and reading it, going to church, right? Like those are some spiritual disciplines we can practice. But anything can become a spiritual discipline that draws us closer to God if we'll let it, okay? So it's a really dumb example. But uh, when someone asks me to pray, I have a horrible confession. When someone asks me to pray for them for a long time, I would be like, yeah, I'll totally pray for you. And like maybe two prayers would get said for that person, which is why I start praying for them in the moment because like, you know, if I don't, that, that may be the only time it gets prayed for, if I'm just being real honest. And I started this little thing, because that really bothered me, right? I want to do that. So I started this silly thing where, like, if someone asked me to pray for them, I remember what your car looks like. And anytime I see your car when I'm driving on the road, that becomes like a cue for me to pray for you. Okay, so like my friend Bree, you know, who's to be a worship leader here, she, like, drives a gray Prius. So anytime I, she asked me to pray for something, and still to this day, anytime I see a gray Prius, I, like, pray for Bree, right? So, like, so that's kind of like a, that's like a silly example, right? I have a spiritual discipline we can form that draws us closer to God. Now, here's something that's really important for you to understand about the means of how God shapes us as disciples. The means God uses to grow us as disciples are a combination of purposeful choices and providential experiences, okay? So here's what I mean. It's a partnership between me choosing to grow as a disciple and God putting the means in my path providentially to grow, okay? We kind of overestimate the providential experiences. We just kind of think, well, God, I'm just going to kind of sit like, God, I'm, tr I'm trusting you. You're just going to make it happen, you know? Yes, true. But oftentimes it's my experience, at least for me, my ability to get the most out of the providential experiences is often directly connected to how meaningful the personal choices to follow Jesus beforehand have been, right? So to go back to like the example of suffering, suffering can be a providential experience that we wouldn't wish on anyone but can lead us closer to God. But my experience is that the thing that often changes that from being like a thing that pushes me away from God versus a thing that pulls me toward God is how much investment I've made in the personal choices leading up to that moment, oftentimes. Right? Have, I, have I engaged with the community that can support me beforehand? Have I, have I formed and shaped myself in the teaching of God's words that I'm not surprised by suffering when it happens, but like I understand, like, yeah, like, I mean, hey, like, it's kind of right. Jesus himself died on the cross, right? So I guess I shouldn't be surprised. If I want to be like Jesus, I'm going to have some, you know, bearing my cross to do, you know, like that, that kind of thing, right? That, that's kind of how that works. This is a verse we've read a lot around here, but it, it's so meaningful for this. Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes this, and he says, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, because it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Right? It's that, it's that continue to work out your salvation. That's the choice. And then there's the God works in you. That's the providential experience. It's those things working together that help us grow as followers of Jesus. Now, mercifully, we are at the end of this message. I have one last M for you, and then you can go home, and your brain can explode, because I've just so much stuff I talked about, okay? Here's the last M. I want to talk about the road map, the map of, oh, I'm sorry, Brian, I skipped over a verse. Well, you'll just never know what it is. So, uh, the map for how God forms us as his disciples, okay? So, we've talked about 
Like, what's the mindset of a disciple? I'm an apprentice to Jesus, okay? What's the manifestation? It's love like Jesus' love. We've talked about the means that God uses often to shape us as disciples, okay? Now I want to talk about the map. So, like, kind of the four areas that God often leads us in to help us grow as his disciples, okay? Here at Crossbridge, we call them our four C's, okay? And my goal, if nothing else, by the end of the summer is you would know the four, you're so sick of hearing about the four C's that you like go to sleep and like you just have dreams of the four C's, you know, like in your mind or something, okay? So four C's, first one is we cultivate a personal relationship with Jesus, right? Basically, this is the idea of how can I grow in friendship with Jesus, right? Uh, how can I grow in trust of Jesus? Because good relationships have trust in them. How can I get to know him? How can I know what he's about? This oftentimes focuses uh, the personal one-on-one -on -one kind of spiritual disciplines that help us grow as followers of Jesus. The second thing I want to challenge you to do is to contribute by serving, okay? Uh, Jesus said, I didn't come into this world to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. The idea of contributing by serving is not that we would like just check off the box because I serve at church, though I hope you do that, and not to be like, oh, well, I serve at a soup kitchen once a month or whatever, though that's great if you want to do that, okay? The idea of contributing by serving being formed in us is that in every relationship, in every scenario, in every environment where I am, I view myself as a servant. I'm not looking to try to get something from someone else. I'm looking to give generously to others as God has generously given to me, right? That's what, that's what it means to contribute by serving. The third map, map piece is that we connect in relationships where truth meets life. A lot of the discipleship commands that we get in the Bible have one another attached to them. Love one another, encourage one another, pray for one another, support one another, you know, like all these kind of things. And one another implies that I have one another's to one another, if that makes any sense whatsoever, right? That we can't be followers, we can't be apprentices, we can't be disciples to Jesus in a vacuum. That we actually need others whom we can practice this out with, who can support us and encourage us on the journey, who can challenge us and push us like a good personal trainer would, you know? That's the idea of connecting in relationships where God's truth meets my life, right? That's important to us. And then the final is that we would care about people disconnected from God. Jesus literally moved heaven and earth so that he could come and reach people disconnected from him, right? We cannot say that we are apprentice to Jesus if we don't do the same, right? If we aren't willing to move heaven and earth or at least some of the priorities in my life around so I can care about people who are disconnected from God the way that God has cared about me as I was disconnected from him, right? When God kind of leads us to grow as his disciples, the map often leads us through one of those four areas. And so this summer, we're going to break each of those C's down. And every each C, we're going to take three weeks and just talk about some core elements of what goes into that, okay? And so my hope is that over the summer that we would see God use this to shape us as his apprentices, as his followers, as his, not Christians, but as disciples. Amen. Because when we live as disciples of Jesus, we also live out the difference that our world is longing and begging for. Amen. This is possible. Jesus wants to see us do this. Jesus delights in this work beginning. 
He's waiting for us to sign up as his apprentices and follow him. And so with that said, I'm going to give us our discussion questions to think about for this week. Uh, number one is how would you define the word disciple? Um, I told our contributors earlier in our pre-service huddle that I think of old people when I think of disciple because my church had a discipleship class and I think the requirement was you had to be at least 79 or have been alive when William Howard Taft was president in order to participate in that class. So that's a good, that's not the definition of disciple. Um, but think about when you hear that word, what do you think? And have you gotten to know some great disciples of Jesus? And maybe talk about their impact on you. Uh, second question is that I talked about how God uses the Holy Spirit, hardships, and spiritual disciplines to grow us. Um, maybe share with your group a way that you've seen God use one of those things to grow and to shape you as his disciple. And the final question is, uh, of the four C's I talked about, which one do you feel like you excel in and where do you feel like is a struggle? Um, obviously, we'll have this message posted online so you can find the questions on our messages page. Uh, we'll have them on social media at, the, uh, like at noon or something like that, so you can check them out there, too. And we hope those are helpful for you. Um, worship is one of the spiritual disciplines that we can practice to grow as disciples of Jesus. It's a way that we can practice proclaiming the truth about God and walking and living in the truth about God. And so Johnny is going to lead us in that spiritual discipline and an opportunity to do that as we finish. I want you to go ahead and stand up. I'll pray for us, and then I'm going to turn it over uh, to him. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your invitation to be and live as a disciple. Holy Spirit, I pray you would empower us, you would empower our church, um, you would empower um, us as your people to, to not just know what you're talking about, but Father, to live it as your apprentices, not to be familiar or not just to be content with uh, being familiar with the lectures that we hear, but actually, Father, to live in the pattern, ways, works, and words of Jesus. Help us to be formed and shaped as those kinds of people, Lord. We ask this in your powerful and perfect name. Amen.